Let's pray. Father, we are about to open your word now this morning and to hear from you through it and pray your spirit would cause our hearts to be attentive, the soil to be properly prepared and plowed to receive the word of God. Father, may you change us by our time together here this morning through the preaching of the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are returning this morning to the third and, Lord willing, final installment of our mini-series entitled Monesty, an Issue of the Heart. This is the third and, as I say, Lord willing, final installment on this series. And as we begin together this morning, I want to just have you think with me for a moment. So just begin with a question here. My question is, you don't need to raise your hands, but my question is, how many of you this morning got up and went to your closet and looked in and picked out certain articles of clothing and put them on and came? I suspect the answer to that question would be the vast majority, if not everyone, in this congregation. And I ask you to think about that question because it really drives us to an important point. And the important point is that one of the byproducts of wealth is the ability to have multiple options in clothing. Multiple options. And what that results in is that fashion then becomes an important determiner of what clothing we actually select and put on our bodies. Fashion now rises to the surface. And that's not true in the vast majority of the world, nor is it been true for the vast majority of the history of the world. Poor people, poor cultures, don't really concern themselves all that much with fashion. In a poor setting, clothing actually returns much more to its basic utilitarian function, which is to clothe our body and to to hide our shame and to provide protection against the elements in the environment in which we live. But when it's a wealthy culture, and ours is a wealthy culture, when it's a wealthy culture, then then fashion becomes more important, and clothing becomes really an opportunity to display our individuality. Clothing can become the place where we make a statement about ourselves. And there is a blessing, to be sure, to have multiple options in clothing. There's no question about it. It is a blessing. But with the blessing comes certain dangers. Certain dangers. And with them, one of those dangers is the, is the temptation and the opportunity for, for our clothing to become a source of our pride. A source of pride. It becomes an avenue through which the sins of immodesty begin to reveal themselves. It is a reality that it is the ungodly of our culture who established the fashions. They were established by the ungodly. 
And therefore, it is important for you and I, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to not go along un, with an unthinking approach to the clothing that we put on our bodies. The scriptures would call us to a measure of discernment in these areas. So we're looking at modesty. We're, we're addressing this topic, and we've chosen to do it in a, in a form of six questions to try to get at the heart of modesty. Six questions. Two weeks ago, we asked and answered that first question of what is modesty, and I'm not going to review that. I would just direct you to the website, to the YouTube channel, and you can hear that again on your own. But we addressed first what is modesty. Secondly, last week, we looked at the question, what does the Bible teach about nakedness? What does the Bible teach about nakedness? And what I want to do with you this morning in the time that remains is pick up and address the final four questions. The final four. And there are this. Uh, question three, is modesty only a woman's issue? Number four, are there reliable universal principles for modesty? Number five, whose job is it to set the standard of modesty? And then number six, what are the limits of our love? So here, let's pick it up here in question number three. Is modesty only a woman's issue? Question number three, is modesty only a woman's issue? The direct answer to that question is no. No. Men can also be immodest in their speech, in their dress, and in their behaviors. And men can be immodest by failing to exercise restraint or to act with dignity or propriety. For these are the concepts fundamental to modesty. Gentlemen, if you are acting or dressing in any way that calls undue attention to your body, then you are guilty of immodesty. Then you are guilty. Now, the male propensity to immodesty probably plays itself out a little bit differently. But I think often it is seen in the gym. It is seen in the gym. It is the uh, flexing, gentlemen, that goes on in the gym when you are seeking to impress the others around you with how close to Charles Atlas you really are. That's a cultural reference that half this congregation has no idea what I'm talking about. Look him up. It is, gentlemen, probably displayed in the slogan that was popular when I was young and attended the gym, and that is curls for the girls. Curls for the girls. It's not without reason that uh, gymnasiums, the walls of them, are lined with mirrors. It is because of the propensity that lies within the male 
heart for immodesty. But having said all of that, beloved, uh, one of the tragic realities of our increasingly sexualized culture is the number of women who are falling prey to the sins of pornography. It was once unheard of. It is no longer that way. I think we can find some of the precursor to this through the use of uh, bare-chested male models, one of the most famous of which is an Italian by the name of Fabio, who appeared on the covers of dozens and dozens of romance novels who are primarily marketed to women in the 1980s and the 1990s. These novels tie together the visual and relational pornography. And they are a gateway to sensuality and wicked thinking. However, in spite of the growth in the use, the female use of pornography, it still remains primarily a male problem. Because men are visually tempted by the opposite sex far more than women. That's a reality. And it's because of that reality, I think, that the the New Testament teaching on modesty is primarily addressed to women. You'll remember Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, we looked at that just two weeks ago, where Paul says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness." We find it in Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 3. Speaking to the women there, he says, verse 3, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. You see the same things addressed that that, um, Paul picks up. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. So in light of that reality of the world, the question we have to ask ourselves is, does the male struggle with visible temptation mean that the obligation for modesty falls primarily upon the woman. Is that true? Or maybe said in another way, is male visual temptation a man's problem or a woman's problem? Yes. Yes, that's the answer. Yes. Men, we need to be like Job. And make a covenant with our eyes not to gaze upon a woman. 
Young men, I know that you, you like the accountability ideas. We're holding each other accountable. Well, let me suggest something to, to hold one another accountable to, and that is the control of the eyes. Pray for each other. Ask one another, how are you doing controlling your eyes? Because it begins there. Sisters, if I can speak to you, sisters, on behalf of the men of this congregation, please remember that visual temptation is a very difficult battle. A very difficult battle. And you can either help or hinder your brother in the Lord by how you dress. Many of our men throughout the week, either at the job or in school, are assaulted by women of this world who dress very immodestly, very seductively. And it's a battle for them. And so please, when they come to church to be among God's people, may it be a place of safety, a place of refuge, a place where they don't have to have their guard up all the time. You can help your brothers in these things. Is modesty only a woman's issue? No. No. Not at all. Number four, are there reliable universal principles for modesty? Are there reliable universal principles for modesty? I think we would be hard-pressed biblically to establish universal standards of modesty. And I want to draw that distinction between standards and principles. In other words, Both Paul and Peter mention braided hair. But there's a a cultural context that is going on there. So in that text, it is not a universal standard that women cannot braid their hair. But there are universal principles, I believe, that are transcultural, that should help guide Christian men and women as we think about and consider the topic of modesty. So let me suggest a few of them to you. A few, what I believe, are transcultural, universal principles of modesty that need to be worked out in every single culture across all of time until Christ returns. So here they are. First, Nudity is shameful and must be avoided. Nudity is shameful and must be avoided. Remember, as we established last week, clothing was given by God. It was given by God, Genesis 3.21. God clothed Adam and Eve, and he clothed them for the purpose of covering their shame so that they might realize by their clothing from this point forward they have a broken relationship. They are are covenant violators, as it were. 
And the clothing that you and I wear is a display given to us by God, covers our shame, and reminds us that we all need the one who can cover us in perfect righteousness, Jesus Christ himself. There's no place for nudity among the believers. Secondly, as believers, we must recognize the danger that immodesty presents to others in the church, family, and society at large. We need to think about, we need to recognize there are certain dangers that are inherent in the sin of of immodesty. Lust originates in the heart, the scriptures tell us, but it is fed through the eyes. It's fed through the eyes. I'm always reminded of Samson in Judges 14 and verse 3. His famous words to his parents, she looks good, get her for me. The man was driven by his eyes, the lust of the eyes. Third, third universal principle. We must be on guard against excessive attention to appearance, either ours or someone else's. We must be on guard against excessive attention to appearance, either ours or someone else's. Beloved, in our context, too much time in front of the mirror Too much time in front of the mirror or or too much concern for fashion indicates a problem. A problem. How much is too much time? Well, let the Spirit of God bring conviction to your heart. But too much time in front of the mirror. Too much attention to fashion, to what you put on, indicates a problem. A problem. Now, typically, and it has been the case here, a discussion of modesty in clothing is typically talked about within the realm of sensuality because that's often where it reveals itself, but it's not the only place it reveals itself. The human heart is so deceitful and desperately wicked because, you see, it's possible to be guilty of immodesty even while dressing in deliberately plain and unsensual clothing. If your reason for dressing in plain and unsensual clothing is so people will see you and think, oh, how modest you are. Oh, how modest you are. It is excessive attention to what adorns us to cover our shame. Fourth principle. When in doubt, don't. Okay? Fourth principle. When in doubt, don't. What do I mean? What I mean by this is, if you are unsure whether your attire is modest, don't wear it. Don't put it on. Don't buy it at the store. If it's been given to you, Dispose of it. Look with me at Romans chapter 14. 
For Paul makes this point very clear there in Romans 14. Verses 22 and 23. It is a sin. It is a sin to act in any way that you know or suspect that God might disapprove of. Romans 14 and verse 22. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. This is in the context of eating meat or not eating meat. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. In other words, if there is a behavior or an activity that you are about to engage in, and you're not sure whether God approves of you engaging in that behavior or activity, if you are unsure or you suspect that God might not approve, then for you to move forward in that is sin. It is sin. What this means, of course, is there can be some things that some people can do in full faith and conviction before God, and for them it is not sin. But for you it would be sin. So pray that the Spirit of God sensitizes our hearts, right? That when we have that moment, that thought that doubt in the back of the mind that says, boy, I'm not sure whether I should buy this or not. Don't. Don't. Let me add two more. These I'm not going to call universal principles. I'll say these are sort of principles that are specific to affluent American culture. How's that? Principles that apply more to the affluent American culture. First, ask for help. Ask for help from someone who is mature in the faith and has demonstrated wisdom in the faith. Newsflash. We don't all have the same body type. We don't have all have the same body type, right? God has made us as individuals. And what I, what I point this out for is because Some garments that look fine, good on one person don't look too good on another. And just because the display rack has size teeny-weeny to size whatever, okay, tells you what I know about women's sizes, I guess men's sizes for that matter, it doesn't look good on everybody. So ask for help. In other words, when you go shopping, take somebody with you who is mature, not somebody who's going to tell you what you want to hear. But somebody's going to be honest with you, okay? Secondly, certain clothing styles are appropriate in one realm and inappropriate in another. Certain articles of clothing are appropriate in one realm and inappropriate in another. I'm not going to call anything out. What I'm going to do is say, think about this. And the Spirit of God will give you wisdom and discernment. Think about it. In our super casual culture where everything goes, I think we've lost something. So let the Spirit of God give you wisdom.
to understand. Number five. Number five. Whose job is it to set the standard of modesty? Whose job is it to set the standard of modesty? In other words, when it comes to what is considered modest, seeking to apply the universal principles as best we can, whose job is it to to basically say, this is modest and this is not? Is it just everybody does what's right in their own eyes? Is that the pattern? I'd like to get at this question, uh, try to address this question by breaking it down into three realms. I'd like to break the answer down into three realms as we try to get at this. Whose job is it? Because it's not the same, I don't believe, in, in all three realms. So here they are. They're the realms of the home, the church, and society. In the realms of the home, the church, and society, whose job is it to determine these things? So let's start within the home. Within the home, it is dad's responsibility. Dads, you are responsible for your home. That is the clear teaching of the Word of God. Responsibility does not mean that you make every single decision within your home, but responsibility means that you bear the ultimate weight for all of those decisions. They are yours. You might think, I didn't sign up for that, and the answer would be, I know. God signed you up for that. Okay? Take a look here with me at Ephesians chapter 5, which uh, we will get to, this part of Ephesians 5. It won't be for a little while, but we will get there. Verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. This is the indicative use of the verb. Rather than the imperative, it does not say, husbands, be the head of your wife. It says, husbands, you are the head of your wife. When you say, I do, you become her head. It's an unavoidable reality. The question is, what kind of head are you? We can look over here to chapter 6 and verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dad, you are responsible for the discipleship of your children. You're responsible. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 4. Within the context of the qualifications to consider a man as an elder. 
Those who are qualified to be elders are not at some special level different from everyone else. Every other man is to to be obtaining to these things as well. Elders are those who have achieved a measure by the Spirit of God of of success in these areas. But notice in verse 4, to qualify, he must be one who manages his own household well. He must be one who manages his own household well. A man cannot be a leader among the people of God who cannot lead in his own home. It is the home that is the proving ground for greater, wider ministry, authority, and influence. So dads, when it comes to the question of modesty, we are responsible. We're responsible. Beyond that, dads are in a unique place to know the temptations and deceits of the male heart in a way that neither their wives nor their daughters can ever understand. Because we are men. And we know what goes on in the male heart, in the male mind. We understand the battle with visual temptation in a way that our wives and our daughters will never understand because they are not men. They are women. Godly wives will desire their husband's input into these matters rather than considering it to be an intrusion into their freedom of choice with regard to how they themselves. Godly women will recognize us and will invite their husband's input. Godly young women in the home will recognize us and invite dad's input, not spurn it. Because of the day-to-day contact that most mothers have with their children in a way that Fathers don't. It is the the mother who has tremendous influence on the raising of the next generation. And teaching sons and daughters, particularly young sons and daughters, how to have a healthy view of their bodies. And to recognize that they are to preserve themselves and to treasure their bodies preserving them for their future marriage partner. Moms, you have tremendous responsibility and authority and influence in these areas. How mom is doing on this will reveal itself in many ways, but not the least of which will be in moms who refrain from dressing their children in ways that are above their age. Dressing them in in fashion styles that, that call attention to their body and in the extreme sexualizing their children inadvertently. Be careful, moms. You're the one I suspect that does most of the clothes buying in your homes with your young children. Dress your children age appropriate. Do not dress them older than they are. There are dangers that lurk. 
I say this, and not the word of God, but let me say this. I think it would be a good rule of thumb when it comes to choosing clothing for either ourselves or our children to not ask ourselves whether a certain garment is modest or not, but instead to ask a more fundamental question, a more fundamental question. What is it about this garment that appeals to me? What is it about this garment that I'm about to take off the rack that appeals to me? Or said another way, what is it about it that makes me like it? And why? It makes me look good. What is my definition of good? Yeah, I know. If you have to ask yourself these questions, you'll never get anything bought, right? (laughs) Dig deep. Go below the surface. Ask ourselves these kinds of of questions that, that draw out what's going on on the inside. Remember in Ephesians 5 and verse 10 when we were back there, right? We were to grow in discernment. We have moved from darkness to becoming children of light. And and part of the process of walking as children of light is to grow in discernment. In other words, to, to grow and understand and begin to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And it's a process for all of us. And we all have lots of blind spots. But we're growing in these things. But I think it's worth the time to to think through the way our culture has, our sexualized culture has influenced our understanding, our concept of what is feminine beauty and male attractiveness. In other words, how have we, living as goldfish, completely wet in the goldfish bowl, how have we drunk of this culture that is completely antithetical to the things of Christ, how have we drunk of it all with regard to our own clothing choices? It's that sort of of internal, meditative kind of thinking that is hard to do in a fast-paced world with a cell phone that's constantly clamoring for your attention. But it is nonetheless something that I think all of us would benefit from. What is it we like about it? And how have our understandings of male and female attractiveness been shaped by the culture in which we live? Standards within the home, dad. Standards within the church. Who sets the standards within the church? Well, the standards within the church are the responsibility of the elders of the church. For the oversight and shepherding of a local congregation has been given by God to the elders, and he will hold them accountable for their work. We see it over in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. It is the elders who are responsible for the spiritual health of the local congregation. The writer says here, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Or Peter's words in 1 Peter 5, writing to the elders in verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted, allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The oversight of a local church has been given by God unto the elders who then are accountable directly to Christ for Christ's church. But having said that, each of us has a responsibility to one another within the body. A responsibility to, to lovingly pray for one another and and prayerfully speak the word of God to one another. It is the one another ministries. It is to love and do good to each other. And the competency of a, of a local body of believers who are, have the word of God and, and are indwelled by the spirit of God is amazing. And Paul recognizes this in Romans. I'll turn you to Romans 15. It's just a, a verse that appears here that I think often gets overlooked the, how profound it really is. Because you remember, Paul is writing here to the church at Rome, and he's writing this, this um, really comprehensive treatise on his gospel. And, and he addresses, uh, you know, in, beginning in, in chapter 12 and, and on to the end of the book, the implications of this gospel. So Paul is giving them really specific instruction in a lot of areas. But look at verse uh, 14 in chapter 15, what he says about them. He says, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. In other words, Paul has tremendous confidence in the work of the Spirit in the local congregation that they are able to open the word with one another, to speak the truth to one another, and to, to, to encourage and admonish one another to grow in the likeness of Christ. So what that means is that there is a role within the body here when we're on the topic of modesty for us to, to interact with each other in a loving way. As I say, when I began this three weeks ago, if we come out of this series with an ad hoc cultural police force, then we've missed it. But we don't want to minimize the role that we play in the lives of each other. Certainly, my mind is always drawn to Titus 2 and the role of the older women and the younger women. But in Titus 2, there's the role of the older men and the younger men. So there is that intergenerational wisdom transfer that goes on. So look to your own heart first, but understand we have a role to play with each other. But when it comes to the gray areas... When it comes to the questions of preference, it will be, in the final analysis, the preference of the elders that are determinative. It has to be that way. Therefore, pray for your elders 
and participate in the, in the selection process of your elders so that only the most godly and mature find themselves in that position of leadership. Within the home, dad. Within the church, the elders and one another. Third, within society. Within society. Societal standards of modesty are generally the result of a shared consensus. The result of a shared consensus, and it's often brought about by a shared religious or, or, or historical commitment that that society has. Sometimes uh, societal standards for modesty are the result of a legal decree by a monarch or a, or a ruling oligarchy. I mean, you certainly one can think of some of the kingdoms of the Middle East, for example, and how questions of modesty are addressed there. But one of the consequences of, of Christian conversion is that it inevitably brings behind it a recognition of the need for people to be clothed. Generally, the further a society moves away from biblical Christianity, the more flagrant and expressive will be the displays of public nudity. You can think about pagan jungle tribals as an illustration of that. But tragically, tragically, we are seeing a rise in public nudity here in America that corresponds with the diminished role of Christianity within Western civilization. We are losing it as a society. And so on that basis, it's sort of understandable why the standards, the societal standards of of modesty and propriety and dignity are slipping. And one only has to think back just a few decades to see how far we have slipped. And I believe we will slip further. We will slip further. Therefore, as believers, we need to hear again the Bible's teaching on this topic. We need to hear this. We need to hear it because we need truth in our ears to counter the unbiblical message that is so pervasive all around us. We can't trust the societal standards any longer. They're not there. They're not there. And you know, maybe, I guess in the long run, maybe that's a good thing. It will help separate the wheat and the tares. Now, let me add a caveat here really quick. Clothing is not the equivalent of godliness. Right? Let me say it again. Clothing is not the equivalent of godliness. In other words, being fully clothed does not make one godly. Not being fully clothed makes one ungodly. But it doesn't run in both directions. And, and one only has to think about the, the, the Middle East and the Islamic culture, which could not be further from Jesus Christ, and yet has some of the most extreme standards of Clothing, right? 
in the world today. So don't miss what I'm saying here. Historically, clothing follows conversion. Why? Because as people begin to be converted out of their paganism, they come to understand the teaching of the Scripture in many, many areas, not the least of which is nudity. But being fully clothed does not make one Christian. And that leads me to my sixth and final question to wrap this up. The sixth question is, what are the limits of our love? What are the limits of our love? This is the the question that drives everything we have been talking about for three weeks home to a personal level. And I'm prompted, or was prompted, uh, for this question by sort of musing on Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4, where Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I was just thinking about that when I was putting this series together. Under the Mosaic Covenant, clothing was a highly regulated aspect of Jewish life. There were laws about all kinds of things, including the fabrics. But under the New Covenant, we we are not under those Mosaic laws, but we, we live under what many call the law of love. We live under the law of love. Paul writes in Romans 13 and verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, to love our neighbor is to fulfill the the intent of the law itself. It is to get at the heart of God. So let me finish this series on modesty this morning with just one question. This final question that I want you to think about, I want you to prayerfully think about. Here it is. Would I be willing, would I be willing to wear drab and unfashionable clothing if I knew it would enable my brother or sister in Christ to avoid lustful thoughts? Would I be willing? Why? Or why not? You see, I think when it is all boiled down, this is really what it comes down to. Who do we love? May the Spirit of God apply the truth in all of our hearts exactly where it's needed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is timely. Thank you that your word is powerful. Thank you that your spirit through his word changes, changes humans, does what is impossible in any other way, and that is to to raise the spiritually dead to life and then to slowly but surely transform them into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Our Father, in these last three weeks, we've looked at a topic that is seldom spoken of, a topic that is often filled with a lot of emotion, 
angst, a topic that needs clarity. And I pray your spirit would make the truth clear for each of us. Help us not to look left or right, but to look within. And may your spirit reveal the truth to us as it needs to be applied in our own heart and in our own circumstance. We pray for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.